on Friday, I started with a question, are you happy? And some of you guys uh, answered that question in your own head or you raised your hand. But I want to start with another question, maybe the opposite end. Are you sad right now in life? Or have you gone through any moments that were sad? Are any of you disappointed with something in your life? Dissatisfied? Maybe there's a class that's not going your way. Maybe there's a friendship that's not going your way. Maybe there's a sports season that's not going your way. Maybe school and your grades aren't going your way. Maybe life isn't going your way. Would you believe it if I told you that every moment of sadness, disappointment, sorrow, and agony will one day be redeemed? Would you believe it? I mean, this world's a pretty corrupt place because I only asked about your life, but if you look around the world, there's a lot of violence. There is shootings. There is world hunger. There's poverty. Can every ounce of sadness and sorrow and evil actually one day be redeemed? And today's passage, we will learn that the answer is yes. The answer is yes, and it only comes through Jesus. And so it also implies that only those who trust in Jesus can bring their sorrows to him and know that that sorrow will one day be turned to joy. So this is our preview for today. Uh, let's see if this clicker works. So how does Jesus turn sorrow into joy? I have three points that I want to go through. Jesus first makes a puzzling promise. It's confusing. Um, there's also a momentary sorrow on this earth. So if any of you guys are alive, which you guys are, you know that this world is imperfect. But for the Christian, there will be everlasting joy. And I hope to convince you from God's word. Because maybe you know this, like, okay, Jesus, he's supposed to make everything good. But maybe you don't really believe it. You believe in something you see in this world, in this life. And you think, okay, well, maybe college will make my sorrow go away. Maybe a future job will make my sorrow go away. Maybe making a lot of money will make my sorrow go away. Because I can hold and see these things. But actually, everlasting joy can only come through Jesus. You don't see him now, but one day you will. So even jumping into this passage, uh, for those who weren't really joining with us the last couple of weeks, uh, Jesus is talking to his disciples, and he knows, Jesus knows, he's about to be betrayed, crucified. And this is actually very traumatic for the disciples. Because remember, disciples gave up everything. They left their families, they left their jobs, they left their comforts, and they followed Jesus and Jesus will now prepare them and say, I'm actually going to be away. And that traumatizes them. And so Jesus needs to remind them that there will be sorrow, but one day there will be joy. So Jesus first makes a puzzling promise. And so let's jump into that first point uh, that we see, which is a puzzling promise. And this is a phrase that actually trips up uh, the disciples. Jesus says this, a little while and you'll see me no longer. And again, a little while. And you'll see me. This is what the disciples, as Earth read in the beginning, that disciples were like, what does this mean? What is Jesus saying? He's talking like in puzzles or, or in riddles, and I don't get it. And so they're talking amongst one another. Um, and so Jesus hears this in verse 19. He finally approaches them, and he says to them, is this what you're asking yourselves? What I meant by a little while, and you'll not see me. And again, a little while, and you see me. So... In your minds, you don't have to say it out loud. What do you think Jesus is talking about when he makes this statement? Just read it again in your mind. I mean, it might be a little 
maybe we, we might understand what it means, but put yourself in the disciples' shoes. This might have been a really confusing statement. So when Jesus says this, maybe the disciples thought, wait, so Jesus, where are you going to go? Are you going on a vacation? Are you going on a trip? Are you, um, like, going to die? Are, are you sending, like, a replacement? What do you mean you're going to be gone and we're not going to see you uh, in a little while? So some, maybe disciples, some of us might think, well, is that referring to Jesus' death and resurrection, that he'll be gone um, and we won't see him for a little bit, and then he'll come back and we'll see him again? That's one option. Another option is, well, does it refer to, uh, like, nowadays when Jesus is in heaven right now and we don't see him, um, but one day when he comes back to execute final judgment, we'll see him again? Is that what it means? Or does it mean some other possible option? Well, the good thing is you don't have to be a super Bible scholar to understand the answer, you just have to read the Bible, because a lot of the answers in the Bible is found in context, meaning the surrounding um, atmosphere or environment, the words, the themes. And if you read this, it makes most sense that Jesus is referring to his death and resurrection, because Jesus is about to be betrayed and crucified, and so it makes sense that he's preparing them to not uh, see him for a while, from Good Friday to Easter Sunday, but then they will see him Again, so here's a really simple uh, diagram that I drew. Um, <laughs> yeah, I had some time last night. Um, and so Jesus knows that he'll be crucified, and to the disciples, there will be sorrow. There will be agony. They will be um, crushed. But on the third day, Easter Sunday, when Jesus rises again, there will be joy. When Jesus defies death and rises from the dead, defeating sin, and returns to disciples in person. Now here's a question you kind of have to ask yourself. Why does Jesus speak in puzzles? Why couldn't Jesus just say, all right, uh, disciples, especially you, Thomas, I know you're not going to believe me, but I'm going to die, but I'm going to come back. So just hold tight. You're going to see me on the cross. I'm going to look like I'm in pain. I am. It's going to really hurt, but I will come back. Just don't freak out. Why didn't Jesus say that? Why does he speak in puzzles or in vague statements like this? It's kind of confusing. But sometimes Jesus speaks in puzzles because he wants his disciples to trust him at his word. Even if you don't understand everything that Jesus has to say, will you still trust him? Because later, and uh, uh, Derek will preach this next week, but Jesus doesn't, no longer speaks in puzzles. He'll speak very clearly, and the disciples say, okay, thank you, finally, you're not speaking in puzzles or figures of speech. Now I believe. And Jesus will slightly rebuke them and say, well, now you believe, now that you understand everything, even if you know that I'll be crucified, every one of you will still scatter and, and abandon me. So knowing the truth doesn't mean you're actually going to follow me. So Jesus speaks in puzzles because he wants to see if his disciples will truly trust him, even when they don't have the full picture. And maybe for us, can we trust Jesus? Can we trust the Bible? Can we trust his word, even if we don't have the full picture? And so let's try, dive into uh, momentary sorrow. What does this mean now that we understand it refers to his death and resurrection? So momentary sorrow, we know now that Jesus is gone. And this is a statement he makes. He says, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, meaning when Jesus dies and is crucified, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn to joy. We'll talk about joy in the second, uh, final point, but uh, right now I want to focus on this sorrow. So 
the disciples, they know that Jesus will be taken away. And Jesus says, be prepared to have agony and sorrow. If you've ever lost somebody you loved, maybe an aunt and uncle, grandma, grandpa, mom or dad, you'll know it really rocks your world. It makes you question everything. Maybe you have a mix of shock and sorrow, grief and anger. There's intense sorrow. And so Jesus or the disciples experience this when Jesus himself is crucified and taken away. They actually witness the crucifixion of Jesus. And so that's one source of sorrow. But also Jesus says that the world will rejoice. The world will rejoice when Jesus is crucified. Now, when I say the word world, it doesn't mean like the physical universe. Sometimes it does, like when God created the world. But in this context, the world refers to those who oppose Christ. So those who oppose Christ will rejoice when he is crucified. Imagine how the impact on the disciples. Imagine losing a loved one. You're already going through that much grief, but then as you post on social media that you miss your loved one, people actually make fun of you. Maybe they say, good riddance, or finally, justice is served. That would be so cruel. But that's exactly what the world is doing in this passage. When Jesus is crucified, the Pharisees and religious leaders, they rejoice. The crowds are happy that Barabbas was released and Jesus is crucified. The soldiers mocked Jesus as he hung on the cross. So there will be momentary sorrow when Jesus is gone, especially for these disciples. And earlier, if you guys were tracking in John 15, Jesus actually warns the disciples, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. So if you're a Christian and the world hates you and maybe makes fun of you, it's not because they hate you. Well, maybe they do. <laughs> but they hate the Jesus that you represent. They ultimately hate Jesus. And you're just the representative of Jesus in their mind. So can you imagine how the disciples have felt? And so I want you to imagine, as some of you guys will go into college, um, I hope you guys dorm. I think it's a very powerful experience. You learn to live with other people. You wake up, uh, you, you eat lunch at the uh, cafeteria. You maybe have the same classes together. Um, nothing wrong with commuting. There's definitely um, uh, sometimes that's necessary for the situation you're in. But if you can dorm, I think it's a really uh, life-changing option. Sometimes you might get in a fight with your roommates, but sometimes, hopefully, you all get along. And imagine if we were disciples back then, in a sense, we would be living life with Jesus. He had him and his 12 disciples, his closest friends, and they lived life together. They traveled around the area together. They ate together. They told jokes together, and they laughed together. And so you have to imagine how disciples would feel when Jesus says, you will see me no longer. It's like losing a parent. If your parent were to say, okay, like, uh, mom, dad, we're not, we're not going to come back. So you're going to have to learn how to pay the bills, do the taxes, fix the car, uh, make enough money. Like, you're good, right? That would be crushing. You would be terrified. And so Jesus wants to prepare the disciples. I will one day be separated and gone from you, and you will have sorrow. And there will be hostility from the world. And so I think the application for us is this, um, that you have to ask yourself the question, are you ready to face sorrow and hostility as a Christian? I think if you truly live as a Christian, that will invite um, hostility. That will invite opposition. There will be people who disagree with you. Now, sorrow, be, and it might not be at the hands of people who oppose Christianity, but 
you will experience sorrow because Jesus has not yet come back and make the world, uh, make a new heavens and a new earth. So we live in a broken world. You'll experience violence in the world or at school. Maybe there are bullies at your school, people who intimidate you. Maybe your teachers are not very fair to you. Maybe your coaches um, just cuss you out when they're upset with you. There is a lot that's wrong with this world. There is um, poverty, disease, sex trafficking, nuclear weapons, and death and sin and everything. This world will have a lot of sorrow because Jesus has not yet returned to make all things new. So we have to be prepared for sorrow, but we also have to be prepared for hostility. Now, I wouldn't really say there's many people who go around and say, I hate you because you're a Christian. You might not experience a lot of that, and if you do, you should have compassion because it's usually those people who had a really bad experience with church, a really bad experience with a Christian, and so they're really turned off, and they're just taking it out on you. So you don't encounter that that often, but sometimes you will. A lot of times you might just get um, maybe a dismissive comment, maybe a joke from your friend, like, oh, you, you really believe that? Oh, okay, well, good for you. Um, you might get something like a weird look, like, do Christians really believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? So you're saying all the other religions are wrong, like Buddhism, uh, Islam, isn't that kind of arrogant? Like, how do you know the truth? You might get some questions like that. Or you might get um, maybe friendly insults from your friends who mean well. Um, maybe they uh, mock you. I had a friend who would go to church on Fridays. Friends would ha- invite them to uh, hang out with them. But they always knew he was at church, so they always called him church boy. Hey, church boy, you want to hang out on Fridays? Oh, wait, sorry, I, you can't. Or like before they would eat, like, oh, wait, church boy, we have to pray, right, just to kind of mock him. And they're still his friends, but they kind of just made fun of the things that he believed in. So if you live out your faith, you must expect hostility. Now, if you hide your faith, well, of course, no one's really going to, you're not really going to experience this because you're hiding your faith, but is that really how you want to live, hiding your faith uh, in the world that you live in? So will you, ex- you must be ready to expect sorrow and hostility from the world, just as the disciples expected that uh, from the world as well. So if sorrow comes through the absence of Jesus, then joy will come through the presence of Jesus. And this leads us to our third point, which is everlasting joy. Be back. And so this is what we see when Jesus returns. Uh, In verses 22, 22, this is what Jesus also says, Truly, truly, I say to you, and whenever you hear the words truly, truly, you really got to pay attention to what Jesus is saying, Uh, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You'll be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. Stop there. So this sorrow will one day turn into eternal joy. Do you believe that? Do you believe that every moment of sadness in your life, if you're a Christian, one day Jesus will redeem for your joy? Jesus knows this is confusing, so he gives an analogy. He gives the analogy of a childbirth. Um, he, He compares the intense sorrow that a mother will have when she gives birth to a seven to 10 pound baby, but compares it to the joy that comes about when a child 
is born. As you guys know, I really relate to this because in a couple of weeks, I'm going to actually witness the birth of my child. And this whole time, I was like, okay, like, I just kind of feel like the same person. Like, it should be good. It's like when I play a board game, I just have to do it, and I learn the rules later. That's just how I do things in life. Um, so I feel like maybe raising a baby will be like that. I don't need to read all the rules. I just have to do it, and then, you know, I'll learn on the way. Um, but that's kind of foolish of me because last night I was just studying, well, what goes into child labor, or not child labor, labor birth. Um, I don't even know, like, the word. What goes into childbirth? <laughs> not child labor. <laughs> That's a different uh, sermon. Um, <laughs> I won't go into detail, but I think it's, it's enough to know the, um, I think, parts of delivery. Because, if, you know, if you get married, um, uh, if you have a child, you'll have to go through this. And so in labor, it can last 12 to, ta- 12 to 18 hours uh, for the first uh, birth. I think for uh, second, third, fourth births, it's a little bit shorter than that. Of course, as I'm saying this, I'm not speaking from experience. I'm just saying what I, I read. <laughs> Um, and so in early labor, um, so the opening when the baby is supposed to go through, it gets bigger. It stretches to four to six centimeters. Um, you start having contractions. It feels like period cramps or just stomach pain, back pain, and it lasts like 30 to 45 seconds. So that's early labor. And then there's active labor. So like the opening, um, dilates, which means it gets bigger to seven to eight centimeters. Um, and that's painful as well. At this time, you got to go to the hospital. Um, and then there's transitional labor. Uh, where it's okay, you're ready to deliver, uh, opening is dilated to 10 centimeters, contractions are 60 to 90 seconds, now you're ready to give birth. You're on a hospital bed, you're actually delivering the baby. And what I read online, they call this um, the most intense and painful part of the delivery, but it's also the shortest. And they call it the ring of fire, because when the baby's head crowns or when it goes through, it has this intense burning, stinging, stabbing, stretching, <laughs> and tearing sensation. And um, the video I watched, the lady was like, yeah, this is when moms say, I can't do this, I can't do this, just before they actually do it and deliver the baby. Because when they push, well, then the baby's head goes through, and then the shoulders, and then the rest of the body. And voila, you have a baby. <laughs> so all of that sorrow and pain and agony, it's worth it because there's a human life coming through. And so um, I was really disturbed after I read this article. <laughs> I was like, wow. <sighs> I'm really scared now. <laughs> like, Vanessa has to go through that. Oh, wow. How am I supposed to help her? <laughs> like, I, I'm not the one giving birth. And so like, um, when Vanessa saw me again, I was like, I'm actually really scared right now. <laughs> I got so much respect for um, uh, mothers and what they have to go through. But I'm actually so excited. Um, for the birth of our daughter. And so, um, yeah, um, motherhood is a joy. Uh, so hopefully one day you may experience that, the sorrow and the joy of having a child. And so I think Jesus uses this analogy. Um, Jesus created all things through him. The world was created. So, of course, he knew what childbirth was like. He, it was through him that the world was created, including humanity. And so he uses the agony of childbirth for the joy of the birth of a child in order to compare the agony and joy of the Christian life. Yes, right now, there is a ton of sorrow. There's a lot of disappointments in your life. There's a lot of um, things that just leave you angry, frustrated, if there's an evil done against you. But when Jesus returns, there will be sorrow, or not sorrow, there will be joy. There will be redemption. There will be restoration. And so 
I think, uh, the th- I want to read verse 22 again because I think it's so powerful. Just listen on to what Jesus says. So also you have sorrow now, right now on earth, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. So for the disciples, they only had to wait a couple of days. I'm sure that felt like eternity. But when Jesus returned, you can imagine the look on the disciples. They saw the crucified body of their Savior, Jesus. They're like, well, I mean, I thought Jesus was real, but I thought he was true, but he's, I see his dead body. Well, it's time to go back to my family. Tell them what happened. Tell my kids, like, you know, I wasted the last couple years of my life. But imagine the joy on the disciples' face when they see Jesus alive on Easter Sunday. Even doubting Thomas could put his hands in the holes of his arms and feet and see that Jesus is real. And I want you, I want you to think, can you imagine if you're a believer, well, everyone one day will see Jesus either as Savior or as judge. One day you will see Jesus actually with your own eyes. The way I see you right now, that's how we'll see Jesus. Because Jesus isn't a spirit. He's human. He became human to come on earth. When he ascended to heaven, he's still a human. So there will be a day when we actually see Jesus with our very own eyes. And I might think, well, hey, Jesus, you didn't really look like what the storybooks look like. You look, actually look very different. And can you imagine not just, well, how Jesus actually looks, but that what it means, what his presence signifies, that when Jesus returns and final judgment commences, Believers will be rescued. The unrepentant will be judged. So for believers, it will be joy. But for those who reject Jesus, it will be sorrow. Not just temporary sorrow, but everlasting sorrow. But for the believer, you have every reason to hope for Jesus to return. Every insult you've experienced, every act of sin you've committed will be forgiven. Every injustice done against you will be avenged because vengeance belongs to the Lord. Every death in your family, including your own, if you are in Christ, you will be resurrected. Can you imagine that day when Jesus returns and makes all things new? There's nothing in this world that can take this joy from you. And so this is the joy the disciples have. Now afterwards, when Jesus ascends into heaven, he recognizes that the uh, disciples, well, They're going to be separated from Jesus again. So that's why he gives the Holy Spirit. But then Jesus also offers another gift, the gift of prayer, the access to prayer. So uh, let's read into the next uh, verse 23. I think it's here. Get the next slide, please. Thank you. So this is what it says. Let's look at verses 23. Jesus says this, In that day you will ask nothing of me, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Okay, that seems really confusing when verse 23, uh, Jesus says, in that day you will ask nothing of me. And then afterwards he says, okay, whatever you ask in my name, I'll give it to you. So that first sentence when Jesus says, you will ask nothing of me, it just means that the Holy Spirit will guide them in all truth. So they won't have any questions about the death or resurrection of Jesus because the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, will guide them to understand the meaning of of the resurrection. And so, in that sense, they don't have to ask Jesus, what does it mean that you'll, be go, that, that you'll go away? Um, so that's what it means in the first sentence. But in the second and the rest of the passage, we have the gift of prayer. Jesus knows that all disciples will have to live life 
without seeing Jesus. I mean, if you're a Christian in this room, isn't it kind of difficult sometimes that we live and believe in a God that we don't see? I can't go to my non-believing family members and say, hey, believe in Jesus. He's like right here. Like he can tell you and show you everything. I wish Jesus was here and he could do a miracle and prove that he existed, but I can't do that. I mean, it's not yet, not till he returns. And so the gift of prayer is amazing. Let's look at verses uh, 23 uh, to 24. It says, truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive, that your joy may be full. So you might be asking now, well, what does it mean to ask in Jesus' name? What does it mean to pray in Jesus' name? I do it every single time. Like, in Jesus', in Jesus name, I pray, amen. Is it really that special? We all do it. I want to say it is special, but maybe you've forgotten the significance of, in Jesus' name, I pray, amen. To pray in Jesus' name is to have access to the Father on, a, on the authority of the Son. To ask in Jesus' name is to have access to the Father by the authority of the Son, Jesus. Let me give you an example to show how mind-blowing this is. Um, I'm a fan of Shaq. He's not like my favorite, you know, superstar in the NBA, but I mean, I, I like, he's a really um, uh, good player. It's a person that came to mind when I was thinking of someone I, I I'm a fan of in basketball. Now, if I were to approach his house, knock on his door, um, and say, hey, can I come in and hang out? <laughs> I would probably be arrested because I don't know Shaq. I'm just a stranger. I'm like a trespasser. He would call the cops on me because I'm trying to get into his house. But imagine this. If I was best friends with his son, Sharif, and Sharif says, hey, Kevin, you want to hang out at my house? I'm like, okay. We go to his house. Shaq opens the door. He looks at me strangely. At first, he doesn't know me. But then he looks at his son, Sharif, and he says, hey, son. And Sharif says, hey, dad, he's with me. And Shaq says, okay, yeah, come on in. Make yourself at home. What's mine is yours. And I enter into his mansion, and he treats me like his own son because I'm friends with Sharif. And I say, hey, Shaq, can I use the restroom? Can I have a cup of water? He says, oh, yeah, restrooms around the hall. Uh, water bottles are, like, in the fridge. And um, I have access to his house because I know his son. And because I know his son, I can freely walk into his house which before was, you know, uh, illegal. <laughs> I would have been arrested. But now that's how it is with prayer. Because you know Jesus, because if you trust in Jesus at least, if you trust in Jesus, you can approach God the Father, the greatest being in all the universe, because when Jesus approaches the Father, he says, hey, he's with me. She's with me. And so when God sees you, he says that you are united with his son. And so you have access to ask God of anything. And Jesus seems to give this incredible promise, whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Isn't that incredible? Whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Ask that you will, and you will receive that your joy may be full. Now, before you run out here and say, okay, God, give me a million dollars, give me an A plus, give me to like this top college, prayer is not using God as a magic genie. I know a lot of us do it sometimes. Um, this is not like a guaranteed promise that whatever you pray, God will give it to you. But I think sometimes as Christians, we go to the other extreme. Okay, I know God's not going to give me everything I ask for, so I'm just not going to ask anything because, well, if I ask something and he doesn't give it to me, I'll just be disappointed. So I don't want to go to that extreme either. There is a life of faith that if you 
reach out to God in faith. Let, give God the chance to just show off. Give him the chance to actually come through and answer your prayers. I think a lot of us, we're afraid to, in a sense, trust God in prayer. I think even this past week, there was a prayer that I was just really desperate for, and I was really helpless. There was nothing I could do, but God answered that prayer. Um, you guys know I work with a, a Christian club on, at Diamond Bar High School, and there was a planning night on Wednesday night, and uh, we had five leaders, but only two of them could make it, but one of those leaders were sick, and that leader was a driver. So if that leader got sick, well, then no one could go, and it would really just delay our planning, and I was at Starbucks, and I was like, oh, man, like, God, like, that would be really horrible if we couldn't get anybody to that planning night, and it just would really mess up our planning, and I was actually feeling super discouraged. I'm like, God, like, we're, we're trying our best here. Like, we really want to uh, reach students on campus with the gospel, but if this sickness is going to um, uh, hinder us, like, God, like, we need you. We can't do this without you. And so I was in Starbucks at that time, and I just stopped. And I was actually reading this passage while I was preparing for um, uh, today's sermon. And I thought, wait, there's a promise of prayer right here. And I stopped, and I just prayed to God. I said, God, I know that you can do anything. I know that you could heal anyone in an instant. And I know that you are not obligated to answer my request, yes or no. But, Lord, we want to make your name known. Lord, you actually gave us the great commission to make disciples of all nations. We're trying to do that. But, God, I can't do that if no one shows up from our team. God, can you just please help heal uh, this leader? Let her drive so she can take another leader, and then we can actually get some planning done. And I journaled about it, and I was like, okay, well, I'm just going to wait to see what happens. An hour later, that student messages uh, the group chat and says, I feel better. I can go. And I was just overwhelmed. I almost wanted to cry because I think it was a really, like, trying week. And I thought, wow, God, that was not an accident. God, that was not just, oh, she just happened to get better. No, that was an act of God. I don't want to say, I don't want to give the credit to anybody else. That was an act of God who answered my prayer because I wanted to give God the glory. And so pray. After the sermon, pray and pray that you would glorify God. Maybe sometimes our prayers don't work because we say, God, can you give me an A? Can you have, help me like just pass this class? That's not a bad prayer, but why did you pray that prayer? If God, if God were to say, okay, well, now follow me with your life, you might be like, well, I don't know if I'm ready to do that, but can you please give me an A? Can you please make my life go well? So maybe our prayers are sometimes deep down kind of selfish. God, give me what I want, but when you want something from me, no, God, I, uh, hold on for a little bit. But when you pray prayers and you step out in faith, let God surprise you. Let God show off. He is willing and eager to display his glory if we only step out in faith. And so don't be afraid to pray big prayers. God does amazing things. Here's my big idea for today. All sorrow will one day become everlasting joy but only for those who trust in Jesus. I know that's probably a very offensive statement because by definition, yes, it does mean people who are not Christians, people who reject Jesus, their sorrow will last forever. They might have joys in this life, but in life to come, there will be everlasting sorrow. But for those who trust in Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life, for those who abide in him, all their sorrow will become joy.
And so, um, to the, I want to speak first to the believers and Christians in this room, but then lastly, I want to speak to uh, the non-believers or those who are still on the fence. They're not really sure where they stand with Jesus. For the believers, it's quite simple. You have hope that every sorrow in this life, God will one day redeem. God will one day restore. He will even undo the evils that are done against you and the evils in this world. So don't lose hope. Fix your eyes on Jesus. Every disappointment and tragedy in life will be undone in the hands of our gracious God. But now I want to speak to the non-believers, those who have not yet given their life to Christ. Maybe you've been at church your whole life. Maybe your parents make you go here. Maybe it's your parents' religion. Or maybe you're new to church. You will experience sorrow in this life. Your teachers might be unfair. Your coaches might yell at you. Maybe a college rejects you. Your parents may fight. A loved one may pass away. You will have sorrow in this life. Life will be hard, and life is difficult because of sin. Sin is disobeying God's command, and the consequences of sin is death and judgment. But God so loved the world, those who oppose Christ, sinners, that he sent his son to die on the cross. So whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. For those who are on the fence tonight, don't you want a God like that? Don't you want to know a Jesus who will take every sorrow in your life and will one day turn it into joy? That's the greatest hope of salvation, and that's the core of Christianity. If you've never trusted in Jesus for salvation, that can happen this very moment. And so I'm going to pray, and just pray with me in your heart this prayer. It does not be a magical prayer. It's not like the magical words that get you into heaven, but it's a heart condition. If you believe this in your heart, this will be true. So let me pray for us right now. As we just close our eyes, um, Lord, we come before you, and we know that in the book of Romans, it says, if you confess with your mouth, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So if you're here right now and you're just convicted of your sin, maybe you're new to Christianity, but for some reason this just makes sense, that's the Holy Spirit convicting you. And you simply have to believe this in your heart that, and say that, God, I know that you are good and perfect, but I know that I am bad. I'm a sinner. I sin and I broke your law, and I deserve judgment, death, and even hell. But I know that your son, Jesus, he died on the cross for my sins, and he rose again, defeating sin. I believe that. And Lord, I now want to live my life for you. I know I won't be perfect. I'll still struggle with sin, but Lord, I want to give you uh, authority over my life. You're in charge, not me. I give my life to you. If you pray that prayer just now, this very moment, you are saved. Not because you said the right words, but if you believe in your heart that this is true and you give your life to Jesus, you can have assurance that you are saved. So Lord, you know every soul in this room and where they stand. I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would convict them in all truth 
in all righteousness to see you as a savior of our lives that will one day turn every sorrow into joy. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.